0: Moses is in the middle of a sermon to the people of Israel before he dies and before they're about to enter into the promised land. He has been proclaiming their need to remember. Remember the Lord. Do not forget what God has done for them. Remember the covenant that God has made with them to keep the laws that have been given. And by doing so, God will bless them when they come into the land. We've noted in our study of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and now Deuteronomy, that these things are a shadow of the reality of what it means for the people of God. And these are pictures then of what it means for us as we're going to now enter into the promised land, what God wants us to know and wants us to do so that we can enjoy the promises as well. And that is perhaps no truer in Deuteronomy than where we're going to be tonight in Deuteronomy 9. If you open your Bibles there, we're going to uh, be looking at Deuteronomy 9. And uh, the message that is found in it is a, a, a stunning and beautiful message of what God is working for his people. And notice that. What Moses does in this part of the sermon in verse one of number of Deuteronomy nine is that he is going to remind them now of what they are up against you 'll notice it in verse one here, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go into dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourselves, cities great and fortified up in heaven." a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know, and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Notice what you have immediately as he moves into this part of the sermon. He goes, now, you know, the enemies that we're going up against and you remember how you said They're strong and mighty and their cities are fortified and tall. And I think what Moses basically does is says, you're right. We got some guys up ahead of us. He doesn't pretend and say, well, this is going to be easy. You know, you've got nothing to worry about. And then no, the obstacle is visible. But look at verse 3. Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Yep, big cities, big people. No problem. The Lord is going to go before you. He will drive them out. He is going to give you the victory and you are going to dispossess the people and you are going to take over the nation and take over the land because, as verse 3 says, God is a consuming fire. And we should keep that imagery about God in, in regards to that in our minds in our studies when we see that term used because notice God as a consuming fire is not always a negative as a warning of judgment against yourself as often we've talked about it and see it used that way in scriptures. But notice the idea is God is a consuming fire to the adversaries, to the enemies. And the point is you don't want to be an enemy of God. Because God is a consuming fire. And here's what He's going to do. He's going to dispossess these people from the land and utterly destroy them because they are enemies. And that is how we should see that even in Hebrews where God speaks of Himself in that way is that as God as a consuming fire is a warning then that we would not want to be His enemy but rather be on His side. And that's what Moses is doing here in these first three verses. We're going to go take the land and we're going to dispossess these people not because of us but because of God God is a consuming fire he destroys the enemies therefore let's depend upon God as we go into the land and now the sermon takes a very interesting shift and you can just imagine we're like alright let's go let's take the land but watch what he does now in verse 4 do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you It is because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. I want you to remember who you are. And what's going to happen is you're going to enter the land after God gives you the victory. And there is going to be this temptation. And the temptation is you're going to say the reason why we're on the land and the reason why God gave us the victory and the reason why we're enjoying these blessings is because we were so righteous. You know, we were so good. We were so amazing. And we deserve this land. And therefore, that's why God did that. I want you to notice how strongly Moses is going to disabuse them of that thought. And you can look in your Bible and see how long this chapter is. For the rest of this chapter, for the whole of this chapter, he is going to make sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that they have no way they would ever believe that. Verse 4, he says, it's not because of you, but because the people are wicked. Always keep that in mind when we have these concerns about the utter destruction of the inhabitants of the land. It is God's judgment against the people in that land. They are wicked and their time of judgment has come and God expresses that here. It's not because of Israel. It's because it is time for judgment in the land. Now listen to verse 5. Not because of your righteousness or your uprightness of heart. Are you going in to possess their land? But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord, your God is driving them out from before you and that you may confirm the word the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. That sounds like a rerun. Let me say it one more time. It's not because of your righteousness, but because of their wickedness. Now watch this in verse six. Know therefore. That the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was so angry with you that He was ready to destroy you. When I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain forty days and nights. I neither ate bread or drank water. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain, on the mountain, out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And at the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. And then the Lord said to me, arise, go down quickly from here for your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. Furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down from the mountain. The mountain was burning with fire. and The two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourselves a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets and threw them out of my hands and broke them before your eyes. Let's just stop there as Moses is preaching. (laughs) Big emphasis here. You are a stubborn people. You will go into the land and you're going to think it's because of your righteousness that God has done this. And God says, number one, no, it's because of their wickedness. Number two, that's God keeping his covenant. And number three, it can't be your righteousness because you're not righteous. You're stubborn. You have been rebellious on the whole journey. You turn quickly away from the Lord at Sinai. And now as he's rounding out here, just remember all you've done. Listen to what Moses says in verse 18. Then I lay prostrate. Before the Lord as before. Forty days and forty nights I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed in doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid in the anger and the hot displeasure of the, that the Lord bore against you, so that he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened. To me that time also. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at that time. Notice Moses says the only reason anybody here is still breathing Is because I interceded. I had interceded for my own brother. I had interceded for the nation. God was so angry with you that he said, leave me alone. I'm going to wipe them all out and start a new nation out of you. And I prayed and fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And God listened to me. Verse 21. Then I took the sinful thing, the calf that you made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was as fine as dust. And I threw the dust of it into the brook that ran down from the mountain. At Tabra also, and at Massa, and at Kibberoth Havavatha, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea saying go up and take possession of the land that I have given you. Then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe him or obey his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. So I lie prostrate before the Lord these 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God. Do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people, or the wickedness, or their sin. Lest the land from which you brought us say, Because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them. And because he hated them, he has brought them out and put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Moses just keeps going. And not only that. Remember how you rebelled at Kadesh and remember Massa and the water and the food and remember every step of the way, everything that we have studied in Exodus and Numbers is all being repeated for him at this moment and saying, you have been stubborn and stubborn and stubborn and stubborn. And he says it again now in verse 25. And the only reason that you're alive right now is because I prayed for you and interceded for you yet again. And did you notice the basis of the intercession? Very important what Moses reveals that he prayed. We don't get this anywhere from the other accounts of what took place. We see in verse 26, Moses says, you redeemed these people. Lord, you can't destroy them because you redeemed them. Because they're your people. You have brought them out by your greatness. And that's why they are here to this day. Verse 27, because you made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why you can't destroy him, because you're faithful to your covenant. Because you always keep your word. In verse 28, your name would be tarnished. People are going to say you brought him out into the desert to die. We don't want your name tarnished among the nations. That's what the Egyptians would have said. And then he says in verse 29, they're your people. They're your people that you saved. And that's why you need to save them and not destroy them. And notice nowhere in the intercession does Moses intercede on behalf of the people and say, well, they are not that bad. (laughs) No, Moses just went from verse six all the way to the end of the chapter saying they are really bad. Twice he said, You've been stubborn from the very beginning. You have been rebellious from the start as you are to this day. Nothing has changed. You are a bunch of rebels. In essence, you are deserving the wrath of God. But out of God's mercy and faithfulness to his covenant, that's why you're going to possess the land. It's not your righteousness. It is the wickedness of the people who live in the land. It is because God is faithful to his covenant. And the highlight is because I've interceded for you. Now watch how that plays into chapter 10. Because now chapter 10 reveals what God did about all that. Here's Moses interceding, interceding all throughout. Intercede, intercede, intercede. Deuteronomy 10. At that time, the Lord said to me, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke and you shall put them in the ark. What does God say he's going to do? He renews the covenant. Moses intercedes on behalf of the people and God's response is not to destroy the people, not to bring about the wrath that they ought to have received every step of the way in this journey. And what is highlighted here is that God renews a covenant. And it is only because of Moses that's able to be restored. And I want you to see that not only as we highlighted it there in verse 19, as well as is in verse 25, but notice here at the end of this preaching section in verse 10 of chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 10. I myself stayed on the mountain as at the first time, 40 days and 40 nights, And the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you. And the Lord said to me, Arise, go on your journey as the head of the people so that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Here Moses says, And then even that time I prayed to God, And God listened. And then God said, you be the leader and you take the people on up into the land. The tablets and the Ark of the Covenant that is made here becomes the tangible proof that God was going to be with his people that their sins were going to be forgiven, that grace was going to be extended to them. This was the proof now that this was going to be the people of God. There was not going to be anyone else. They could now look at the covenant with the two tablets of stone that are inside that ark, and they would know because it is there with them that God is with His people and He has made a promise. He has made a covenant. And that would become the tangible evidence of that for them. The reason why that is so important, why it needs to be highlighted, is I want you to notice the psalmist even underscores this point all the more. Listen to Psalm 106 as the psalmist records and reminds Israel's history. And he states this in Psalm 106, verse 19. They made a calf at Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, He said He would destroy them had not Moses, His chosen one, stood in the breach before Him to turn away His wrath from destroying Notice the theology is even deeper in Psalm 106. You all were going to die. It was going to be the end of Israel, but Moses intercedes. And that's what's highlighted by Moses in Deuteronomy. But God listened to me and he did not destroy you. God listened to me and he did not destroy you. Three times Moses says... Forty days and forty nights I was pleading and interceding on your behalf. And what we see then even the psalmist saying is that what Moses did was he turned away God's wrath through his intercession. Now it's Sunday night so I get to do deeper theology with you. And I want you just to think about this little bit of theology for a moment. In the turning away of God's wrath that's deserved upon the people as Moses intercedes... Does God have to vent out his wrath on Moses or on an animal or send his wrath somewhere else? No. No, he doesn't. And I'll explain why that matters a little bit later. But I just want you to see the scene. It's not that Moses comes in and he goes, don't barbecue the people, barbecue me instead. It's not the picture of atonement. That's not the picture of how this atonement worked. What happened is Moses pleads and prays and intercedes. And God's wrath is turned away. It doesn't have to go somewhere else. It doesn't have to land on something else. It doesn't have to french fry somebody else instead. It's just God. That's the atonement picture that's being given here. That's what Moses accomplishes for the people. Let's talk about some New Testament messages though. For tonight, because there are some big ones tonight, and I just love what we see in this chapter. Number one, the big E on the I chart that jumps off the page not our righteousness. That point cannot be missed that Moses is just rubbing into the people all throughout the sermon. The point that you see Moses making is the point that Paul makes in the New Testament. There is not anyone who is righteous, not a single one. No one can stand before God and declare that they have done something worthy of their standing before God. It is the simple message given to us again and again and again. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we have absolutely no basis for relationship, no basis of standing, we have nothing to put before God. That's what Moses is doing to the people. Don't go into the land and think you contributed anything to this. You know what you contributed to this? A bunch of stubbornness and sin is what Moses says. That's what you contributed to the relationship. You were rebellious and stubborn from the start. And I love it when he says, and you still are to this day. (laughs) It's not like you're getting any better. (laughs) <laughs> and nothing to offer. We talked about that in numbers. We sometimes think of the second generation better than the first. No, they weren't. Not in the slightest. And Moses stands up and even preaches that at them. You're not doing any better than your parents. And we all should have died again out here. Number two. The intercessory prayer of Moses. It is not by accident that the scriptures over and over again speak to the idea of Jesus as this high priest who intercedes on our behalf. I am looking forward to Hebrews that we'll be kicking off in May, getting back into that and doing that as our Sunday morning run and looking at the the beautiful pictures of what that looks like. But I want you just to consider some images that are not in Hebrews in thinking about how the Scriptures paint this in regards to Jesus. Number one, when you think about the end of Jesus' life and the way John records that ending, remember with Jesus in the upper room, chapters 14, 15, and 16, and then you have this beautiful prayer in John 17. And I think it's fascinating that John has that because of the four Gospels, John is the strongest connection to the new Moses and the new Exodus. He's all over that imagery and symbolism coming through. And if you remember that Jesus does not simply pray for himself in that prayer, he prays for his immediate disciples. And then he also prays for those who would believe later on. And if you remember, one of the things that Jesus prays on that prayer in John 17, verse 24, Jesus says, Father, and speaking about everybody, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I don't think I've thought about that sentence enough because that's awfully deep. Jesus says there, I want everybody to see my glory because you love me from the foundation. Not because they're, so, they're going to be pretty good. They're going to be pretty, they're not going to be pretty good. But I want these who are going to become my sheep, who are going to become my people. I want them one day to see my glory. Because of the love you have for me, notice this intercession is even going on in this high priestly prayer. I find it interesting. I think all of our Bibles, as a editor to that section, it says the high priest prayers. <laughs> like, yep, yeah, it's it's loading right into Deuteronomy here in that very picture. And an even more detailed picture. You might remember this as we were preparing for this this betrayal and crucifixion. Luke's account possesses this. Remember, as all of us are going to be falling away, Jesus says here, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Notice what Jesus does. But I've prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Here again is this imagery of you're going to come under an onslaught and you're going to fail, but I've prayed for you. Here is this high priestly imagery again of Jesus interceding on behalf of his own disciples. I think also interesting the 40 days and 40 nights hits you in square in the forehead over and over again in this text, doesn't it? How interesting and not only interesting, but highly symbolic That what's Jesus doing? It's the very first time now we're starting off the the ministry and the work of Jesus. What does He do? After the baptism of Jesus into the wilderness. How long? 40 days and 40 nights. And what's he doing? He's fasting. It's the same imagery here. It is a picture of he has come to do the work. He is doing the work of Moses, but in a greater sense, that he has come to turn away God's wrath, that he has come and he is going to be the high priest that the world needs, and is emblematic in the fact that for 40 days and 40 nights, here he is in the wilderness, just like you see with Moses fasting and praying just like you see with Moses and what you see with Jesus that you don't see with Moses is success conquering Satan temptations he is victorious over them sends them away for a more opportune time a beautiful picture of the victory that we see in regards to Jesus and I mentioned in thinking about Moses what did God do in turning away his wrath that's it It's, it's gone sometimes there is this theology and i danced around it some this, in this morning's lesson as well and talking about my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it comes out here that often the answer for atonement is that what happened is that rather than the wrath of God falling on us, it fell on Jesus. And I submit to you that's not what the Old Testament depicts as our foreshadowing. The Old Testament depicts Moses goes in, intercedes, and Moses is fine. He's got a relationship. He's not cut off. He's not condemned, nor is wrath put upon him. But he comes in as a rescuer and savior. And that's what Jesus does for us. The wrath of God doesn't have to go on Jesus. doesn't have to go on an animal or anywhere else. Jesus comes in and averts the disaster and turns away God's wrath. And this appears to me to be the appropriate way to speak of what Jesus did through atonement, because that's all we're shown. We don't see the other things that are sometimes layered into that. Now think about, in Jesus, here he comes, lives his life, gives his life, turns away wrath, and what does he establish? New covenant. Just like you see happening here with the connections of Deuteronomy 9 and Deuteronomy 10. After Moses intercedes, what does God do? He says, right, make two new tablets. Here's the Ark of the Covenant. Here's the place of forgiveness. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant, that's the mercy seat imagery that's right there. There's your covering over sins in the Ark of the Covenant. And so similarly here, as Jesus does his work as the high priest through the cross, a covenant is renewed. That's what we highlighted when we studied the aspect of Mark in regards to the Lord's suppers. The, the blood of the covenant is reminded to us. Now, here's what I want us to think about for a minute with the covenant and why this is so critical. Here in Deuteronomy, after Moses averts God's wrath and God does not destroy the people and does not make a new nation out of Moses... How many more times does God threaten that throughout the history of Israel? You know, does he come to Joshua and say, you know what, I'm sick of all these rebellious people. I'm going to make a new nation out of you, Joshua, and I'm going to kill them all. Or in the days of the judges, as he come along and say, you know what, they're all terrible people. Hey, Samuel, I'm going to use you at the end of all this because they're, it's all wickedness and everyone's doing right in their own eyes. Or does he come to David and say, you know what, they're all a bunch of terrible people in Israel. I'm going to wipe out all of Israel. I'm going to make a new nation out of you, David. That's the last time that happens. And that should be something to consider. Is that once this intercession is made. Israel is going to be God's people. Now they're going to, need to be purified and they're going to need to be judged. But it's not they're going to be cast off. And we'll start a whole new line and a whole new people. No, nope. these will be God's people. And I want us to realize that that is exactly what the hope that we have with God. In Jesus making intercession for us and establishes then this new covenant, there is now not a threat of, okay, I'm just going to wipe all of you out and start completely over. Let me show you that in Jeremiah. Now I'm holding a little bit back because you see my quotes in Hebrews 8, Hebrews 10. That's going to be fun when we get there in 30 years. And so, but, The quotation out of Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10, remember, comes from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. If you've grown up in the pews, you probably know that passage pretty well. In some, it talks about the days are coming. I'm going to make a new covenant. It's not going to be like the prior covenant that I made. But in this covenant, I'm going to write my law on their hearts. They will be my people. I will be their God. The end of verse 34, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more then we stop reading Jeremiah because that's all that Jeremiah is good for. Watch what happens next. Verse 35. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. After saying, I'm going to bring in a new covenant, the very next words are, here's what this means. You will always be my people. And the soon as you will not be my people is when the sun stops giving its light and the moon stops being in their fixed order and the stars stop doing what they're doing and the waves start doing what they're doing. And then he says it again in verse 37, thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explore, explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel. Now watch this for all that they have done declares the Lord see what God's doing he says all right if the heavens can be measured (laughs) neat that we just had you know in space hey we found a black hole 55 million light years away (laughs) wow okay we took a picture of it Uh, if you can measure all that then that means God will cast off this covenant for what they've done And if you can measure the depths of the earth, let's go. All right, start digging. Then God will cast off his people for what they've done. The renewed covenant that God is making is just like what is happening here in Deuteronomy 9 and 10 with Moses. That now there will always be this hope and there will always be this reality that God keeps His covenant. Because what we have the tendency to do is we look at our sins and we go, I don't know. I don't know. And it is fascinating that what God has done with Moses is he says, I accept your intercession. And from now on, it was always going to be through Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Okay. Moses is going to go a different route. No, no, no. These are going to be his people. He will refine them and purify them and he will make them his people, but they will be his people. And how good do they do that? I mean, they're just outright terrible. We're in Daniel. Why are they even in Babylon? (laughs) They're not doing what God says. But God is holding up His end of the covenant. He is being faithful to His purposes and faithful to His will. And He will maintain His covenant righteousness and covenant faithfulness even in the face of all that. And the whole idea of then Jeremiah comes along and says, I'm going to make a new covenant here. God's going to make this new covenant. I'm going to forgive sins. And it's going to be still grounded under the same faithfulness of God that God is going to have a people and he is going to forgive sins. And that there is no basis for us to sit back and go, well, I think my sins are too much and that I am not righteous enough to be able to enter into the promised land. Moses is preaching a whole sermon that says, if you think you're going to look at your righteousness as to why you're in this land, you're looking at the wrong thing. It is not by your righteousness. It's because of God's faithfulness. And because Moses interceded on behalf of the people that he could allow them to come in. And that is the picture that is given to us is that God says, intercession has been made through Jesus. And that covenant's not going to be altered. And the whole point that God is doing with that. And the whole point of what Moses is doing with that sermon is that when you hear, you get to be in the promised land with God and enjoy the rich blessings that God has promised. And it's not because of anything that you have done to make yourself worthy of it, that you deserve it, or you can point to your acts of righteousness and say, see, here's why I ought to be here. But because there is a merciful God, and because we have a faithful high priest who has averted the wrath of God, so that we can enter into glory the whole purpose of telling us that. And so that it would just leave you humble. Because there's no way you're going to go around. And say, well, look at me, aren't I an awesome disciple? God goes, no, you're not. And good news, that's not the basis of this relationship. The basis of our ability to be in relationship with God is because we've had an intercessor who, who intervened and turned away God's wrath. That's the imagery that's being given to us. This is what Hebrews is driving at in Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, in speaking of Jesus, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. What you're seeing Moses doing here was a shadow of what Jesus would do for us. And the last thing we're supposed to do is step back and go, now. Aren't we amazing? We are to be brought to our knees in humility and be broken by our sins and be stunned that Jesus lives to make intercession for us again and again and again and again and again and again and again. again again. We've said that about Moses, right? How many times have we said when we've studied with Moses... Wouldn't you just go, yeah, let's start a new people. This is ridiculous. Moses <laughs> is so faithful in all of God's house to keep coming before God, interceding on behalf of the people and rescuing them from wrath. This is what Jesus does for us it is supposed to lead to our obedience it's supposed to lead to our love it's to lead to our service our devotion it's to cause us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength because we deserve the wrath of God and the only reason we do not have that happening to us is because we have a high priest in Jesus that's why we come to Jesus and that's why we love him And that's why we obey. And that's why we serve. And that's what Moses wanted the people to do when they entered the land. Don't go into the land and, oh, all the rules, all the laws, oh, this is terrible. You should have perished in the wilderness. Be happy to enter the land on the mercy and the grace of God and enjoy what he's done for you. Now remember what God has done and obey all that he has commanded you to do. We encourage you to do that tonight, to turn away from your sins, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and in doing so, enter a relationship with Him from love and devotion and humility and serve Him faithfully. Can we help you do that? Won't you come now while we stand?